Now, when Carl introduced the uh, series on Beautifully Broken last week, he told a story uh, about a, the breaking of a vase. And that was very similar to one that I came across when I was training for ordination. I did a placement with an RAF chaplain. And a woman in his congregation had a, uh, a picture from the Lord of a vase, all right sort of vase. It was made of clay, but nothing special. And then she saw it fall on the ground, being smashed into lots of pieces. And then hands carefully collecting up every piece, painstakingly gluing them all together, so that the clay pot looked pretty much as it had before, except for all the crazing where the glue lines were holding it together. And then the wonderful thing happened. The owner of the hands blew on the vase, and all the clay was turned to crystal, and the glue lines were gold filigree, so that the common clay pot had become a thing of wondrous beauty, and the beauty lay precisely in the areas of brokenness. And that's what the Lord is doing when we are broken and damaged by what we experience in the world. There is nothing so catastrophic, nothing so awful that it cannot be brought into the Lord's wonderful redemptive purposes. It's the wonderful way in which Romans 8 verse 28, God works all things together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's not saying it doesn't matter. It's not saying it wasn't terrible. It's saying it is terrible and it's precisely in the awfulness that the power of God is released. It's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. And that's the spiritual truth underlying this new sermon series, knowing God's love in our brokenness. As we look at these flawed servants of God, an adulterous king, a deceitful son, a doubting servant, and today, a disobedient prophet. Not only a disobedient prophet, but a very cross prophet. It's a jolly well-known story, and it's even rather a funny one, isn't it? I mean, Jonah being spat out by the whale and then sulking when his nice shady plant dies. And we can appreciate the innate humour in the tale. But we need to start by appreciating the seriousness behind the story. The great city of Nineveh, 120,000 people plus all their cattle, has become so corrupt and evil that it is in imminent danger of destruction at God's almighty hand. God would be entirely justified in obliterating it without further notice. But he stays his hand. He sends his servant to give them 40 days warning. And this is his divine design. But when he comes to commission his servant, the prophet Jonah, that's not what Jonah wants to hear or do. Nineveh is a capital city of the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are the age-old enemies of the Jewish people. Jonah doesn't want them to be spared and repent. He wants them to get their comeuppance. He is deeply angry with the Assyrians, and the last thing he wants is that they should be spared. So his attitude is, well, don't give them any warning. Let them all be blasted. That is his personal attitude and agenda. But he knows it's not God's. There's no question but that he knows it is God speaking to him and that God is gracious and merciful and that God has a gracious plan of salvation. So when the people of the city all repent, chapter 4, verse 2, his reaction is, I knew it! I knew that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and resenting from disaster. Didn't I say just that when I was still at home? That's why I ran away quickly to Tarshish. So he's really upset with God now. <laughs> as well as with the Assyrians. 
So here we've got a man who knows God, knows what God wants, and does the opposite because God isn't angry enough to suit him. And I'm afraid we have to find Jonah guilty of the sin of rebellion against God. And according to 1 Samuel 15 verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And Revelation 21 verse 8 says that their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So this is serious stuff. Just as God could perfectly fairly have obliterated Nineveh for its wickedness, so he could justifiably send Jonah straight to hell. But he doesn't in either case. But nor does he allow his purposes to be defeated. Now, in the course of your life and mine, God will bring us into situations which he knows we will find deeply challenging. And he only does that because he will leave no stone unturned to make each of us the person he wants us to be. There's a wonderful line from Spurgeon which says that for the child of God, good, um, no, nothing can be ill. Uh, good, everything is good because bad is good in an unexpected form. Now, it takes quite a leap of faith when something bad happens to interpret how can that be? How can God turn it to good? But every time you and I face circumstances that we don't like, we have the opportunity to let God use them to shape our character to be more like Jesus's. Every horrid situation is a potential means of grace. And you and I do have a choice. We can kick against the pricks, we can rail and complain and sulk, we can be filled with anger and self-pity, or with despair or spite, or we can choose with our wills to surrender to God and bow our heads and accept what he has allowed in our lives. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And that is simultaneously a reassuring message and a terribly, terribly hard one to accept, isn't it? If life is really kicking you, if you've suffered appalling things at people's hands, and to say, give thanks, to get to that point of saying, God, somehow you are in this, somehow you can make this work, and everything in us, all our emotions are crying out and kicking and screaming. And God says, trust me. It's the ultimate growth point for faith. Because you're being asked to trust that somehow in the midst of all this horror and pain and grief and anguish, God is somehow able to bring pure gold out of the fires of affliction. And you may have come across that thing of, um, that picture of God with a crucible in front of him. And he turns the fire up hotter and hotter and hotter. And the gold is melting in there. And he is watching and he is skimming off the, the dross and skimming off the dross until he can see his face reflected in the molten gold. And that is what God is doing with the affairs of affliction. And it's so hard. But what makes it a little easier is that we can see that that is what happened in the crucifixion. In Jesus' case, of course, there was no dross to burn away. 
but the worst thing that has ever happened on the face of the planet, man murdering God, turned out to be the ultimate great act of salvation for all humanity. And God will do the same thing with the, in comparison with Jesus's, light and momentary afflictions, which you and I may have to face, so that 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The trouble is, of course, that we don't always manage that God-centered reaction first time round, do we, any more than Jonah does. And so God in his divine mercy and tenderness usually brings us face to face with that situation or something very like it again at some point in our lives because he loves us too much to give up on us. He loves us too much to take no for an answer. He loves us too much to let us just say, no, I'm not going to take this, I can't accept this. So he doesn't give up on Jonah. What he does is to send a terrifying tempest and then a great fish. What an awful lot of anguish Jonah would have saved himself if only he'd obeyed God in the first place. And isn't that so often true for us too? Now, by no means every anguish we experience is the result of our disobedience to God. But sure as eggs is eggs, if we try to find a way round God's will and assert our own plans for our own life, it will result in tears sooner or later. And pray God it does. Because the ultimate and the worst judgment of all is when God finally and reluctantly gives someone over to a seared conscience, where they lose the capacity for repentance and surrender. So if you can look back over your life and think of things that I don't think I really handled that quite right, I don't think I had Jesus' attitude in that situation, and God brings you to something not dissimilar again, recognize what's going on. And don't keep resisting the will of the Lord. So, having rescued Jonah through storm and darkness, God presents him with a fresh opportunity to obey. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And this time, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So that's all right, isn't it? No, because even now his heart isn't surrendered to God. When everyone repents with sackcloth and fasting, what should his reaction have been? He should have been thrilled. They've turned back to God from their wicked ways. Isn't that absolutely glorious? I'm a preacher. They've all repented. <laughs> this is terrific. Actually, Jonah is absolutely furious. He's hopping mad. He'd been angry with Nineveh, now he's angry with God for not being properly judgmental. And aren't we all so prone to want God to judge those of whom we disapprove? How do you feel about ISIS fighters, things they've done? Is it what we're seeing with some of the people from Grenfell Tower? We want to see people punished, we want to see people blasted for it. They've got it wrong, they should jolly well suffer. And Jonah has that reaction as he looks at Nineveh. And they haven't been treated the way he thinks they should have been. They've been let off because they repented. So he goes off to sulk. And so God has to teach him, and through him teach you and me, lessons about compassion and grace and about God's monopoly on anger. 
Lord freely sends Jonah a vine to give him shelter. He's very pleased with it until it's eaten by a worm and dies. And then Jonah is absolutely livid. In chapter 4, verse 9, God says to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Yes, I do. I'm angry enough to die. But in the final analysis, only God has the right to be angry about anything. We only have the right to be angry insofar as we are participating in God's anger, because Hebrews 10 verse 30, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Mere human anger poisons us. Now you may have humanly every justification for feeling intensely aggrieved by things that have been done to you. And indeed, if this is stirring things, you might like to come and pray with somebody during the communion or towards the end of the service. But in the end, both what the therapists say about, oh, you must let your anger be expressed, is wrong, and bottling it up is wrong. Because what we need to do, and what Jonah needs to do, is to give his anger over to God. And say, against thee, thee only, have I sinned? Well, against thee, thee only, has these people sinned. Lord, you, vengeance is yours. They face your divine judgment in relation to what they've done to me. I hand it over to you. Because I'm not perfect and I can't sit and face ju your judgment on me. And it's no good my saying, well, they're much worse than I am, so they deserve to be blasted and I don't. Because God says, be therefore perfect. Even as my Father in heaven is perfect, says Jesus. So we come and say, Lord, I am really upset about this situation. But I hand it to you. And I may need to do that again and again till it really is released and surrendered. Jonah needs to learn, as each one of us needs to learn, to surrender his anger along with his agendas to God, the compassionate one, who says so gently, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And see how gently God deals with erring, disobedient, cross, wrong-hearted Jonah, just as he's done with wicked Nineveh. Isaiah 42 puts it like this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. He knows your weaknesses far better than you do. And yet he determines to use you for the unfolding of his perfect purposes. And he will not allow anything, anything, anything to stand in the way of that, not even your disobedience. And again and again, he will lovingly come beside you and say, Shall we try that again together, my dear one? So whatever failures there may have been in the past, failures to do what God commands, failures to react as he does, we can truly say in conclusion with Jonah and with the psalmist as he puts it in Psalm 103, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He won't always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. 
or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are dust. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let be. Amen.